Hosts. This is Bruce. This is John. This is Blix. This is Trav. And this is Jay. Welcome to the TriTag Podcast, your only source for TriTag games as we explore the many worlds of TriTag, including Fringeworthy, Bureau 13, Hardwired Hinterland, Weird Zone, and a host of other products that TriTag produces. Thank you if you've been listening to the Fringeworthy podcast. We are still going to be providing Fringeworthy material. We wanted to bring in some of the other games that TriTac does since they didn't have their own podcast. Fringeworthy. What was in Captain Oates' journal? Where did he go? How far did he go? What did he find? We're going to give you the God's honest truth here, folks. Uh, we mentioned Captain Oates' journal. We never said what was inside of it. Yeah, it's <laughs> kind of left for the GM to develop. We were talking earlier about this, and I said I'd keep it kind of a Heisenberg book where a few pages at a time came out of it when necessary. Like Dead Sea Scrolls. I like that idea because the Dead Sea Scrolls they were little tiny scraps that had to be put together yeah. like giant jigsaw well, puzzles. It was freeze-dried on his dead body. So, yeah, I imagine some things happened to it in the process of freeze-drying. You could also say that it's not always written in the same language. You know, because the French portals give you languages <laughs> when you go places, there may have been several times where he wrote it in another language, and maybe he spoke those languages so he didn't mind that he was thinking and writing. Maybe it was easier just to not switch. Yeah, they made you know, an entire section in that book in Mayan hieroglyphs. So, right, or, or, or like Hittite or something, you know. Or a dead and, language, a language that never existed. Yeah, that, that's funny. It was a journal. It was his personal journal. He was writing it for nobody but himself. So you're right. It makes sense that he would have references and shorthands and things like that that might be cryptic to anybody else reading it, possibly in a different language. You're absolutely right. Yeah, so part of that journal may never be translated at all. From what we've gathered, he may have did this, this, that, and the other, and then the rest is just lost to, you know, it died with the man. The thing is to try to find a way to, to, to dribble the information in Captain Oates' journal out piece by piece rather than giving the PCs the whole thing at once, which means you have to write the whole thing. I know one of my PCs would then turn around and say, well, you know, that would be a major mission for United Nations to do, though, is to, is to recover the entire, entire journal as fast as they can. And yeah, it would, I would, put, I would put millions of dollars on the project to recover that journal. I might establish that the first team, you know, got it blown up with a concussion grenade or something, <laughs> and they're having to put it back together. Uh, no, it was, remember, it was found on his body, and basically it was then more or less, you know, taken intact. In <laughs> right. Well, still, there, there's a time element involved here. It's not like there's like 100,000 people who do this kind of forensic reconstruction and restoration. I mean, there's probably no. only a handful of people that really could do the job, and every one of them is going to say, okay, you give it to me. And I'll work on it, and I'll give it back to you as I get the pieces. No, don't take the book, yeah. cut it into fifth, into three pieces, and and give it to like two other guys and me. Okay, now that may be what they may decide to do. You can go and say out of the hundred pages that were in the book, there might have only been fifteen pages that were actually readable once it was found, and this is the information that we were able to deduce yep. or understand from that. Yeah. So. 
introduce a time delay in decoding the journal and understanding it so that you don't have to write the whole thing and his whole 10-year career in one go. But you also don't want to be in a situation where they go through a mission, they lose half the team, they come back and and you go, oh yeah, we just decoded page 37 of the uh, journal and it talked about that world you were on. Oh yeah, too bad. (laughs) No, that, that that would be just mean. That would be just Yeah, it would be. So I'm saying don't do that. (laughs) If you really want to, as a GM, you can use the journal to run and start your adventure. So we just decoded page 37, and it's talking about blah, blah, blah. So let's go and verify. Here's an adventure adventure hook. Exactly. That was the term I was just thinking of. Thank you, Jay. There's there's a whole other thing that you got to remember, too. Remember, he's reading it, so he knows what he's writing. So there's certain other things that would happen, too. For example, let's say he had a system for mapping out the portals, which is different than IDETs, which is highly likely. Yeah. And then at some point in his career during the book, he switches over to another way of doing it, but never says anything because he knows after a certain point, it's like, oh, yeah, that's where I switch systems. You know, I didn't like the other way it counted, but he never says anything about switching it. Or maybe he just has like a black line drawn across the page, and that's what that means to him. But not to anyone else. So you know, you could be going, on, you could go on a mission from the book, and wind up someplace, and like, I, I, this is nothing like what he described, right. you know. And then later on, they'll they'll say, oh yeah, you know, it turns out he switched systems right about here, or he might not have even had a system for mapping. Maybe he just simply called each of the worlds that he explored by a name, and he just knew he was just knew where those names were. Right. Captain Oates is messing with you posthumously. Yep. One of right. these days, we're going to find a portal to his afterlife, and we're going to have a talk with him about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, nothing says that Captain Oates was a cartographer. No, no. In fact, he was a, he was a, uh, if I remember correctly, a naval officer, and he was a junior naval officer, in fact. <laughs> so he, you know, no, he was not a cartographer. And if he had a map, that might have been, you know, something that got destroyed. I mean, he might have had that as a separate document. I mean, how many people in their uh, home journals keep maps? Yeah, they might make drawing of an island or talk about a, a country that they went to, but they're not going to fold in a globe or something like that, you know, or at least yeah. not an entire thing and showing the trade routes there and a bus schedule and all that stuff in there. They're not going to put all that stuff in there. I mean, unless it was really, really important, something happened on that bus. Yeah, for you know, all we know, he lost his map when he was trying to crawl out of the ice crevasse that they broke his leg on. And his map was basically is now basically crushed and ripped to shreds by the ice by this time. You know, 100 years later, around the pulp, is, the map is gone. And actually, talking about drawings, they may, they may recover on a page that's nothing but a drawing on one side. And you're looking at it going, what is this? This looks interesting. Where is it? <laughs> I mean, we may actually learn about the queller that way. You may have, this, you have these strange stick figures. Then you meet a queller. They're stick figures. <laughs> You didn't do it, but you don't realize that until you actually go to a farming world and run into a queller tending the farm. We just thought he was a bad artist, didn't know how to draw people. <laughs> so GMs, you don't have to feel like you have to produce something yeah. like, thinking the right term, an, not an atlas. And a, yeah, an atlas or a gazetteer or something. You don't have to do the whole thing. A travel log. You don't need to create a, the Captain Notes travel log. These were his own personal thoughts as he traveled the French Pass. And so you're going to have poetry, you're going to have philosophical ruminations, you're going to have little short stories about this and that. You may have pressed flour, too, because I think that was in one yeah. of them. 
uh, mentioned, okay, but it doesn't mean that the whole book was filled with orchids. My point is that if it takes time to unravel the whole book, you have time to put adventure hooks and clues in there if you need them later. You don't have to establish that they're all there on day one of your campaign. I think probably a good first third of the book is him spending time with Schmert. He was rescued by Schmert and nursed back to health. So that's going to probably be like 10, 15 pages of that book. It's just about him and Schmert. Yeah, just trying to sit there and wrap his mind around a, a being like Schmert. Yeah. That's take up a lot of that journal just because Scott Expedition was, what, 19th century? It was, that's a lot for that type of person to, yeah. you know, a walking, talking, upright animal. Yep. That's just something that is would blow the mind of a 21st century person. You know, Sanuri had to sit there and just be like, what in the world? So Captain Oates really would have just scribbled everything he could about this creature. If he was familiar with the uh, Arabian Night stories, that would be probably the closest thing to be meaningful to him. Because in the, there's lots and lots of talking animals in the Arabian Night stories. And Chris Schmertz talking in rhyme, so that's going to probably drive him crazy after a while. You know, I guess yeah. in there. This is day 30 of my invalid uh, my recuperation. Schmert came by and, oh, dropped 12 stanzas on me again, and I didn't listen to him because I'm bored. <laughs> right, I was going to say, I, I could see the first several pages of this book being, I don't understand what this thing is talking about. I have no clue what he's saying. I think he's asking me questions, but I'm not sure. Well, I think if he's speaking in poetry, he'd still understand, because poetry was really big back in the 19th century. I mean, you had all these poets of that era. Yeah. If he's speaking English and saying poetry, I think he would understand. It's just after a while, you know, it might be a page or two, and then all of a sudden he'd go, okay, this. But I don't think he'd be the entire time just, you know, lost and clueless. It would you know, it would come to him after a little while, like, oh, he does this way. Okay, well, he meant this. I save some time by going insane at the idea of the term Miller and saying everything in rhyme to begin with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I can't game that. I have to sit there and say, he says this, but says it in rhyme. I'm not a poet myself. I couldn't do it. <laughs> yeah, uh, me too. It was Schmert that found him on the ice and brought him back through the portal. So in that case, probably Schmert was speaking English. Because otherwise, he probably would have been speaking the language of the portal he took him through. The closest people to the portal at that point in time would have been uh, Scott's people and the... Uh, and Scott exits himself, yeah, he'd be speaking English. Assuming that he took him back to some world where he actually had a tree, when we don't know where he took him, that world might actually have had a dominant language, so he, might, he and Schmert might have been speaking in Croatian or something. Mm-hmm. So here he is trying to wrap his mind around someone who's speaking to him in rhyme in a language, his mind is treating like it's a mother tongue, but he's got this cognitive dissonance because he knows that it really isn't. Oh, yeah. And then he thinks there's like five or six of them to Mallorn until he realizes that it's really the same to Mallorn. He just keeps changing his hair color every time he oh, leaves. Yeah. Or, and hairstyle, you know, different combing patterns, right. you, know? you know. Oh, today I feel so gay. Brush my fur just this way. This looks fair. Doesn't it look fine? Oh, I, I think I broke a tine. <laughs> As an example, in the show Farscape, 
they had to introduce them to the fact that they had this little squirmy slug that which was just how they brushed their teeth. Yeah, the dentist. Yeah. And so they take this slug and they shove it into John Crichton's mouth and it runs around like crazy, eating all the plaque, and then he spits it out. Yeah. <laughs> the total creep out factor must have been enormous. And here's a schmirt who is from a race who doesn't who loves to do everything by bioengineering. You just know there was all kinds of weirdo things crawling around him. It, that must have taken a while. I visited the water closet. I don't think I can ever do that again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I, I don't think I could do number two twice. Yeah. But, boy, do I feel clean. <laughs> <laughs> I could be a bishop. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, I, imagine, uh, I imagine a Tamalan house or, or, or a ship being a lot like uh, the ship on Lex. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Totally organic, takes care of all your needs. You just have to feed it every so often. Well, yeah, that's how uh, the ship in Farscape Moya was. Yeah. It was yeah. biomechanical. It was a living creature. Yeah. Right. I don't know about you, but I have never actually had adventurers spend hardly any time whatsoever with a Tamelorn. Mostly because I saw them as this enormous trump card. I mean, they come in, they change everything, they turn around, they leave. I mean, it's almost like ex deus machina. There's so much of a huge change. And of course, you know, if they hang around more than five minutes, they get descended upon by everybody and his cousin who has got a million questions for them. So they almost almost just come in and go, whatever they're going to do, and then they turn around and they disappear and they're gone. So nobody ever spends any time with them. So I really haven't spent a whole lot of thought on what it would be like to spend months, years with a Tamelorn, um, you know, it's it's going to be a challenge for a GM to to think through that. You may actually even see in, in Oates' journal that he, he starts wondering, am I really a equal to this to this creature, or am I his pet or pet project? I'm not quite uh, sure. Yeah, pet project is what is, is what a lot of people are going to think once they learn about some more things in the fringe packs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> They, they so, end up seeing that there's they have their god complexes and they regard others as things to work on. He probably was Mark One on, on the implantation of information. Poor Oates' brain was just chock full of information he didn't realize he knew until we pop out where, where appropriate, just like Sayuri. And wouldn't that be confusing to him? How do I know this? Yeah. First time he goes to a pylon, he can read it. And he doesn't know why he can read it. I think that in and of itself would probably do a lot for his mental state. These memories aren't mine, yet they're acting as they are. And I mean, most people would just be weirded out because they would put two and two together. It's like, Schmirt put this in my head somehow. That means he did it without my consent. Yeah. And then you got a whole other mental framework. Yeah, kind of weirded out by a lot of stuff about the fringe paths. Interesting idea, it, and it has interesting you know, applications sometimes. I didn't ask my dog his permission before I snipped his uh, yeah his things. <laughs> You're listening to the Fringeworthy Podcast. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern. No matter how we spin this, the information of what's in Oates' journal is not provided to us. Yeah. And probably it's not looking like we're going to get it anytime soon. So 
players and game masters and such are, are free to make up what goes in there. I don't see a book coming out with that information in anytime soon. Well, not while we're busy doing the podcast. No. <laughs> no, but actually, to be, be honest, to properly do a journal for someone like Captain Oates, it would have to be written in style. I mean, it would be written in the style of a Victorian-era adventurer. I don't think I can do that. With an inkwell and a quill pen? Actually, they had fountain pens back then, didn't they? Yeah. Still. And yeah, yeah. With, with that graceful, wonderful handwriting that everybody had back then. Is using pencils as you they, they last longer, but but no, just the writing style, the the, the way they put the words together. The yeah, f- no, f- my head just exploded trying to consider yeah. that. No, I'd read a lot of H.G. Wells, his early stuff. That would be about the right age. I was gonna say you can watch a lot of Deadwood. Yeah, no, remember he's Victorian, he's British. Read stuff that's written around the turn of the century, twentieth century. I think the language they use in Deadwood is a lot saltier, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it's it's saltier, but it still has a lot of the, the vernacular that went on at the time. Because you got to remember, a lot of those people were imports from England and, and thereabouts. I haven't seen any of that series. Was it good? Uh, yeah, it's excellent. Yeah, excellent. It's rough, and and you got to get used to the language. They did their research. It's it takes a while to get used to being able to understand what they're saying. The English language went through a significant change post Civil War, where it's still English. It's just it takes so adjustment. Sounds pretty cool, actually. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Found, I found that out with uh, Shakespeare. I can't read a Shakespeare play worth a darn, but get good actors up there saying it and doing it, and I could follow along quite easily. You can say, well, the first 15 pages that we were able to decode is my life with Schmert, basically. <laughs> you could even say that this is the information that we have to give you, and we'll give you more information as it becomes available because – we're still trying to figure out the, either the validity or the accuracy of some of this stuff because some of it's conflicting with other things or we don't understand what he's saying here and it could potentially be dangerous. We're back to rationing out the information over yeah. time so that GM I, doesn't have to write the whole thing at once. Right, but those are, those are very plausible explanations. It's like, well, you read it. You know what it says. It's like, yeah, but we're not willing to send a team out on the information in here. Because we don't know what we're sending you into. It could be exactly what he's saying, or it could be something completely different where you know the, the information is just not reliable as of yet. And once we get some more corroborating evidence from you know places that you go, bringing back information, reporting on what you found, where he said you would find it, i.e. if he changed his path designations or maybe his descriptions weren't fitting – what teams were finding, and then it becomes clear a little later on, oh, he actually meant this. My problem with that idea right there is the players are going to say, well, why don't you let me read it and make up my own mind? And then you're stuck having to write the whole thing again. Then that's when the, the game master says, oh, no, 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 that book is too important to just hand to anyone and need have experts looking at it. Top men. Exactly. Yes. Very <laughs> <laughs> we have top men looking at that. Well, no, you're going to have to give it to them anyways. I mean... Unless Unida has a, what, what did Bruce call, I think, a forensic reconstructionist, whatever, you know, that type of person would be trying to have to they'd piece be, that. They'd be able to hire one, yeah. Well, they outsource it, which means either they would have to bring that guy into Hatsumi base, or they'd have to ship send the, the Ship the remains of the uh, journal to yeah. the lab. Well, yes. Yeah, either way, that book's not going to be in the hands of an IDA team anytime yeah. soon, if ever. Some of the best experts are recovering old documents, all work for museums. 
Yes. They have documents already they're trying to recover, and now you want them to do what? <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, well, here's, well, that's where the money was involved. Yeah. Right. Here's, do it because they are going to be paid oh so well by United. Yeah. Millions of dollars to this person <laughs> put this there's, book back together. There's two other things to consider. They don't want them going half-cocked on wrong information. That's another oh, sure. reason why. But again, you're talking about the players versus the characters. The commanding officer will say, no, we're not going to check that out right now until we know more about it. The players will be saying, yeah, 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 you don't have the book, do you? The answer is yes. That's when the commanding officer goes, it's not for you to know. <laughs> it's yeah. on a need-to-know basis, and right, right now you don't need to know. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Go, go do your job. Now, the other thing is, too, that it may come down to that he may have only visited five worlds in those ten years. Because True. he may have spent a year or two or three on one of those worlds. That's actually very Victorian. It's very Victorian. And it, when you go someplace, you're not going to just be there for a week and go. Be there and learn that world. Right. They used to sail. The, they used to, when they went on a sailing trip somewhere, they might not come back for several years. Heck, it took them six months to get to Antarctica before they actually ran their expedition. And they actually waited for the right weather. So waiting is not a problem for these guys. So, yeah, right. if he goes someplace and it's someplace that's safe and interesting and has women. Uh, I was going to say, maybe, maybe he met a girl. For all we know, when you read the last chapter of his journal, he's coming back because he got married. And he wants to introduce this person to his family. He wants to get back and let his family know he's gotten married. There's also the possibility that he's found something exceptionally disturbing that Idet doesn't want to get out. There's always that possibility, too. I you know, the Melor, yeah. That book may be under lock and key because yeah. it's just one of those things where, yeah, you don't need to read that. Not yet. Yeah, but see, here's the thing. Let's say that, I mean, and this could be a heck of a scenario here if you wanted to get into intrigue and whatnot. Let's say Idet knew that the Mellor was out there from Oates' expedition. Right. And then later, here comes Idet happening upon it. And let's just say through whatever resources or whatever you knew? <laughs> of course. He carried Lee Miller on his one world, and he got the heck out of there. The journal, and then Idet has, you know, Unita has the journal, and they already figured out about the Melor, but they didn't want to tell the explorers yet because they didn't know, well, if we tell them this is out there, not, they're not going to want to go out there. They deal with the Melor, you know, however many years down the road it happens. They come back, and somehow it's found out that was in Oates' journal. Oh, by the way, you know, and that could be good role playing if you wanted to get into the background mm -hmm. of Unita, kind of like Jay did, you know, where you dealt with that type of adventuring. That could be some very good role playing because you're having to deal with your superiors and all of a sudden you can't trust them anymore because of the fact that, you know, they held this extremely important life threatening fact from you for all this time. Yeah, you have to kind of be careful with that, though, because, um, at that point, you changed it into a different type of game. You changed it into kind of a John Grisham style of game. Let's say if the players wanted to do that, you could come up with that as a scenario. That'd be a major uh, yeah. campaign change, but, you know. And and again, uh, the, the idea here is the GM has to decide what the flavor of United is when he sets it up. He has to decide whether or not they're good guys and whether or not most of the people there are really well-meaning or if they're bad guys. And actually... My experience with my players, and it may be kind of different, is that if these are people who are living with the characters and, and sharing danger with the characters, 
the players kind of expect them to be good guys and not uh, have ulterior motives. In the early years, uh, IDET is underfunded, snared up in politics in the UN because basically it would be. On their laptop, they have the IDET created Welcome to the United Nations DVD. The official one is still being made, and they haven't got past minute five yet on that one yet. <laughs> because that's the way you enroll. I mean, there'd be so much conflict, so much, so much controversy about every single image on that DVD. It would take years for one to get made. Then you get into what's the character of the UN. Mm-hmm. Is it this goofy body that's continually wrapped up in, in, in its own red tape? Or is it, you know, this this evil conspiracy, or is it generally a well-meaning attempt at establishing world peace? What's happening in the real world may or may not have a bearing on what's going on in your game world, because you're wanting to present a scenario that pe- the players can play and have fun with. Yeah. You know, and then we get back to the first rule. It's got to be fun. Yep. You can also have an insulator between you and these possibly uh, nefarious or problematical elements in the IDA. Your team liaison it can be somebody who's a real stand-up person who really acts like a buffer and does all that back-end negotiating for you so that you always see things working out in your favor and you don't realize that this person is working day and night to, to cover your butt and pull strings to get equipment for you that you're going to need to find out through the grapevine the information that they don't want to tell you but somebody knows it and so somebody's going to tell somebody and you still get it or at least enough of it that you can do the job so there are ways to as you said create a different tone that might be uh, thought of as example you have the Doctor Who episodes and then you've got Torchwood all in the same world, basically dealing with more or less the same kind of things, totally different yeah. tone. I'm going to go and reiterate something I said before, and that is is that if you're planning on introducing the Meller into your game, you're already considering changing the yep. tone of your game. Yes, drastically. This whole thing about, well, they knew about the Meller and they didn't tell us, is that going to be worse than actually meeting the Meller? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> well, no, nothing is worse than a character actually meeting a Miller. Just hearing about it, okay, fine. Oh, yeah, okay, fine. They, they're they violent, they're animalistic. No, meeting one and dealing with it? No, no, that's always the greater of the evils. <clears throat> yeah. And they are the greater of the evils. Yeah. <laughs> if you do want to write part of the journal, since we're not doing it for you, GMs, if you want some information on what to put in the journal... I would highly recommend that you crib some stories and uh, adventures of Alan Quartermain. Oh, yeah. Because those are in the public domain. I can almost guarantee you that none of your players have ever read them. I just read one a few months ago where the whole story had to do with them being chased around this old tree by this gigantic water buffalo. Well, turn the water buffalo into a dinosaur. You've got a fringe Roy adventure. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, and running into natives as he did in Africa, the stories, and then are written from a purely Victorian point of view with that whole Victorian style that you're talking about. So it's going to sound authentic. Just a little thing for you guys to crib and, and put into your games. I really like that idea. And if you want to say a little racier when he gets to where he likes, crib some Flashman stories. I don't have any idea what that is. Flashman. 
created by Hugh McDonald. He was taken from an old British story. I can't remember what the story was. He's always in the, in the right place at the wrong time, and he's an abject coward. But he somehow he, he gets knighted in a Victoria Cross out of it in the process. So this is also a Victorian set of stories? Yeah, set in the Victorian era. The reviews of it were really positive, but I haven't gotten to read any of them yet. Yeah. Also, Richard Burton, oh, 1001 I, Nights. Oh, yes. Stories, stories for Oates, okay. the things that Oates ran into. Even Richard Burton's his own history is great source of information. Sir Richard Burton, not the actor. Sir Richard Francis Burton. His own adventures are wonderful. Yeah, he's the one who discovered the source of the Nile. Oh, yeah. He's the one who translated the 1001 Arabian Nights. First he white was, man ever to make it into Mecca and survive, yes. Yeah, that too. He was pretty much the Renaissance man of the Victorian era. He was like a linguist, a swordsman, an explorer. Mm-hmm. Just did all sorts of stuff, knew all sorts of customs. You could pull a lot of story ideas just from that man's exploits alone. Yeah. So there's plenty of information out there. If you want to do the whole 100 pages, and if you happen to do the whole journal, we'd like to see it. Yeah, oh, share, oh. share it with us. If you're going to do the work, there's no need for us to bang our heads on it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you can always get Richard to proof it at the next uh, Gen Con. <laughs> you can send a copy of that, too. <laughs> Actually, what would be even better would be if they serialized it and sent it to us piece by piece. That would be truly Victorian. Oh, my oh, goodness. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Penny Dreadfuls. <laughs> Uh, we could even include them as podcasts. Even thinking of trying to write in that style makes my wrists cramp up. Yeah. Owie. To me, it's not just writing that style. It's just using the right vocabulary, having the right mindset. That's why you read material of the time, and you find somebody who has a set of stories that resonate with you, and then you, you read enough so you start hearing the voice in your head you know, as they tell the story, and then you just turn around and have them tell another story the story that you want them to tell, and just write it down. That's what Robert Heinlein did. He said that he didn't write the stories, he just he just wrote what the voices told him to. <laughs> yeah, I, I do that myself sometimes, but I, I like to know what the punchline is. I like yeah. to know where the story going. But, but, he, but he said there were lots of times he didn't know where the story was going because they, they kept doing things he wasn't expecting them to, his characters. Yeah, it's... It's like when I'm doing uh, people talking from other places in time, I have to remember when I'm doing the characters not to use certain words because they wouldn't use them like... Yes. Uh, you want to know what the, what the most universal English word in, in, uh. in the world is? Okay. okay. You could be in darkest Africa and, and say, okay, somebody and he goes, okay, and he knows what you're saying. It's gotten everywhere. But you know what? It's only it's it's an Americanism that that basically stayed in America up until World War II, and then it got out at that point. So you don't have Romans saying okay; they would say uh, all right or very good, or they would never say okay. <laughs> okay is very much an American word. Right. Well, again, that's why you read stories of the time so you can get an idea of the vocabulary. You know, it only takes a couple of uh, well-turned phrases to put the the reader or you know the player into the mindset, or at least to get the feel for what it is you're trying to get across. Yep. You know? So where are we with where are we now? <laughs> I think we're done. <laughs> Bill 
stalking the night fantastic. In Bureau 13, it is important for your character's motivation to know why you're in the Bureau. And we refer to these as character backstories. Almost every character has come out of some kind of supernatural incident, meaning that they were a regular everyday person when suddenly they were f uh, brought face to face with the supernatural and they had to deal with it. Usually it meant that if they survived and they survived in such a way that they didn't go completely to pieces. And they were observed by a Bureau 13 team who said, well, they were able to handle themselves, they didn't go crazy, maybe they're a good candidate for the Bureau. But that story, you know, that, that's putting a very light gloss on what that story could be. So we're going to talk about tonight about some of the possible background stories you could have for your character and why it's important. Trav, why is a character background, an origin story, important for a character in Bureau 13? The character story, it sets the standard for the character's skills, the feats, any unique talents that the character might have. Now, let's say the character has magic or psionics. Well, then that backstory will explain why they may be a mage or a telepath. So you're suggesting that maybe this backstory actually is the inception of those or the initial expression of those talents. Well, yeah, yeah. Let's um, like if there's a genetic predisposition for magic in the females of the family. Your grandmother, mother, and you know this current female character have it. Well, then there you go. It gives you a reason to say, well, the character knows about. They might have knowledge arcana and knowledge religion, such high roles. It's because they come from a long line of practitioners. Thing with if you're a military, let's say your third generation army, well then fine, you would have skills like notch tactics and you would have personal and advanced arm proficiency for skills and feats. Yeah, backstories determine where the character has gone, and you can also use your character backstory for where the character is going by planning you working with your master to plan adventures based on the past of the character. Because most of these stories we're talking about are very traumatic. They're literally life-changing for the characters because they almost didn't survive. And so by surviving, they're certainly going to have a certain amount of onus toward whatever type of creature it is that was part of the encounter. If they were attacked by a troll, then they're probably going to really hate trolls. Uh, or as vampires or werewolves or anything else that it might be. Uh, it would provide character motivation for them to learn everything they could about that aspect of the supernatural. Because, you know, once you, you, you caught me out once, that's not my fault. But if I get caught unprepared again, you know, what kind of an idiot am I? This can be very useful in a game because it provides a rationale for expert knowledge. Most of the game systems have pretty, especially D20 Modern, has a pretty broad category for the supernatural. 
But you could say, hey, I have a background where I specifically would know about this type of creature. And the GM could say, well, yeah, yeah, you would know about that type of creature. Therefore, I'm going to give you X amount of bonus toward knowledge and possibly even tactics that could be used against this kind of creature, which makes your character seem very knowledgeable, gives you a lot of spotlight time before the team. But it also means you're going to be more successful at running the investigation against these types of creatures. In the D20 version, I have a character, Mama Lasagna, who is based on a co-worker of mine. I made the origin where her husband and three daughters were wiped out by uh, undead. When the character snapped out of it and got hold of her senses, she realized that she was going to start tracking these things down, and that's when the Bureau upon her. So, yeah, her skills that once she joined the Bureau went toward that end, tracking down undead, which... I believe the uh, skill for figuring out dead undead is knowledge religion and knowledge arcana because she had to know about supernatural creatures she might run across. She just was a regular mother of three, wife, worked at a regular job, and then that one event, bam, got to where it shaped her for the rest of her life and it forged the character in that direction. A lot of times the teams that are created for Bureau 13 are sort of created in a bubble. Uh, you have your guns experts. You've got your supernatural expert, but they could also be uh, the the uh, uh, tailor tinker uh, type characters where they're just regular people, but they have no backstory. They're just there. You create them because it was an interesting background for your character in your mind, but there's no links to anybody. There's no idea of how they integrate with the, the society in which they came from. So you're completely free at that point, of course, to ride around in your RV and have adventures and never look back once, which it could be very pleasing to the character, the player. Uh, certainly it'd be reassuring to the character, but it's not realistic in the sense that nobody is an island like that. Things that come out of your background can create great adventures for your character. It can also allow you to express aspects of your character you never did before. If you're somebody who's the gun expert, but then you find out that gun expert has a troubled teen at home that he's never talked about, and then now he has to deal with that fact because the troubled teen has gotten involved with bad people or even commits suicide or gotten into other kinds of trouble, and that you can now say, hey, my character isn't just you know this guy who cracks jokes and fires uh, a uh, automatic uh, rifle. I, I'm a person. I, I care about things, and, and, and I have stresses and conflicts and things pulling me away from the job because I'm a real person, at least in, in the sense that a role-playing character can be. That's the kind of character motivations I think about. Now, John, you suggested that not all Bureau agents actually come from such traumatic backgrounds. If you look in the D20 book, and when the story's there from Team Fremont, one of the characters in, the, in my Bureau 13 uh, group, uh, Father Murphy, he met a mummy named Sylvester. And it was not traumatic. It was not dangerous. It was basically, oh, that's a mummy. And that's how he got inducted. It doesn't have to be life-threatening. And then there's another character in the group. The character's name is St Stefano Rinald. He turns out to be a, a spoiled rich kid who learned that he has the ability to do magic. He was then trained by the White Witch of Fremont, and she said, okay, you know what? You need some rough edges knocked off. Let's talk to the Bureau team that's here in Seattle and see if we can get you in, in, involved. So he, he was more or less recruited 
but not by the Bureau. He was recruited by his, by his teacher. But is his motivation going to be to please the Bureau, or is it to get a graduating credit with the White Witch? Probably both. It's got to hold the Bureau of Resources now. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, wow. You know, I was thinking about you know, using magic to steal, but I don't have to anymore. I work for the Bureau. <laughs> to me, it sounds like this character is just using the Bureau for amassing personal power. Oh, well, I, I could use the Bureau to get spells I never would get access to, that type of thing. Yeah, and to the other characters, uh, April Smith and, and Gwen Fleischer were basically pickpockets. They're both psychics. Gwen has the ability to charm people, and April has telekinesis. Gwen would charm people with, and get them all just watching her and looking at her and talking to her, and April's back there telekinetically picking their pockets. Oh. And then they got caught by the, by the local bureau team, and they basically got recruited. Was that or or that or you know or was that the the anti-psychic drug? Oh yeah, yeah. Which no one likes. Well, that's because it messes you up. In my earlier uh, campaign back, this is the campaign back in the eighties. I decided to actually run their encounter that got them into the bureau. These are little solo adventures, so I had to make sure to keep things balanced that they could actually survive and maybe even succeed in the adventure without. Uh, beer agents show you up and save the day. In our game, uh, in the D20 Modern version, we always start them off as at least first-level characters. So they are already people who have jobs, who have professions, whether that profession is a magician or short-order cook. Then they have their encounter with the supernatural or, in, in what you're referring to, their encounter with the Bureau. Um, and they get brought into the Bureau, at which point then they receive their training from the Bureau, which in the D20 Modern, one, we have a template that we give them, and then they move on. Your characters, of course, can be more advanced. They can be more seasoned, higher-level characters before they join the Bureau. It just depends on what the needs of the campaign is and how your GM runs the game. Uh, if, you're, if your players do not care if all the characters are at the same level, if the GM can handle adventures where some characters may be really high level but aren't particularly combat-oriented versus lower-level characters that are intensely combat-oriented, it can still work out to be a good mix. But that means that you can have these characters that have all kinds of differences. They're not all fresh off the boat. They're like, they haven't all graduated from college or from the military, which was the situation we had a lot in the early days of the TriTech system. Oh, yeah. Basically, you have the Gun Bunny 1 troop and Gun Bunny 2 troop and Gun Bunny 3 troop. But the point here still, John, is that it's important that your backstory provides hooks into your character so that we can use, well, I should say we, the GM, can use those to create adventures that should resonate with that character and give them spotlight time and also allow the other characters to understand nuances of their character. Possibly, even in the future, create a big reveal where the character can undergo a transformation into a different kind of character based upon you know, some of that information in the background. If you have a skill, the Bureau will build upon that particular skill. Mm -hmm. If pre-Bureau, you're a car mechanic. The Bureau will teach you everything there is about mechanical engineering that you are willing to learn. If you are a police officer, well, then they're going to give you lots of weapons training. 
If you were a student of martial arts and the Bureau is going to give you everything they know about hand-to-hand fighting and weapons fighting, if you are somebody who works in computers, the Bureau will give you the training to augment those skills, Mm -hmm. like disinformation or whatnot. There are some who are literally like housewives and just people who are not necessarily skilled to fight the supernatural. They just happen to be, like I've said, at the wrong place at the right time. But if they happen to have some type of skill, which is what got them through that experience, going through the Bureau training is a good way for them to build upon those skills and augment them to a much higher level because of all the access to all the various training resources that the Bureau has in Bangor, Maine. Which isn't in Bangor, Maine. Right. Yes. <laughs> that, that's a little, another piece of disinformation. Right. And, and there's really a, a, some very important reasons why you would have a lot of things in the background of your character that could cause problems. The Bureau is not the only supernatural investigating agency out there. You already mentioned uh, MI-13. But there's also evil supernatural agencies. There's the Windwill of Coven, the Brotherhood of the Bolt, there's the Shadow Works. There's all kinds of groups out there that are also hunting the supernatural, in, the, in some cases to add them to their, the supernatural to their ranks. In other cases, they're also trying to destroy the supernatural. So when you have a supernatural incident in your background, the Bureau may not be the only person or the only group that has paid attention to you. If you continue to live in the same area, if you do have relatives and friends, those people will therefore be targeted, not necessarily for attack, but just to keep track of them. Because in the future, if you should run into that group again and they recognize you, they're going to go, oh, this is, you know, Jane Doe, and she's really, you know, Sharon, you know, Berkman. And I know, know exactly where her brother is. And I think Sharon's going to help us in this adventure. And this can happen if your characters have good backstories. But I'm just saying is it's, it's something that all GMs should consider adding to their campaign because, you know, these characters, you know, they didn't come out of nowhere. So even if they thought that they had erased their past uh, in, in as far as making a break from it, going to another town, taking a new identity, it doesn't mean it still happened. Uh, now, there are ways of getting around that. I mean, if, if a player really wants to cut loose from his past, then there is facial surgery. You can re- get your fingerprints uh, replaced so that you literally become a different person without a past. If that's what you want, then you can eliminate that. But I don't think that's a good idea because the players should not see this as the GM screwing with them. This is, this is the player getting extra spotlight time. So, you know, that's a good thing. That's something that we like. And as we've said so many times before, conflict is good in a role-playing game. Of course, if I had one of those characters, first thing I'd do is have him run into an old friend. He looks nothing like himself before, so it's going to be kind of awkward going, oh, I know this person. Oh, yeah, I used to date her. Yeah, and there she is with a new guy. What are you going to do? Getting a new persona doesn't always deal with the problems that you, you originally had. If you're a character that came from one of those backgrounds that you talked about, John, where you were from a family of witches or 
uh, you were part of some other organization in the past that's in good standing with the Bureau, well, it's quite possible for them to say, hey, we've got somebody who's one of us who's in the Bureau, let's tap that resource. Let's put a request into the Bureau for them to come solve this problem of ours. As you said, knowing that they have the possibly full resources of the Bureau to back them up. The kind of resources that that small group of mages or psionicists or whoever they may be might not have. Oh yeah, in fact I used that once. There was a critter loose and the White Witch found about but she realized she couldn't deal with it. But she knew it was a Bureau team in the area. And she got over a former student and told him, Hey, Stefano, could you deal with this thing over here that rips people's faces off and eats them? Thank you. That seems like a kind of situation that the Bureau would want to support. There's always the possibility that that person or group is selfishly yes. asking the Bureau for help under perhaps misleading information. Oh, this group is hunting us. They're trying to destroy us. When in fact is they're actually somebody who is competing with them on uh, the purchase of an important piece of property or uh, perhaps you know they're another mage group that is gaining some kind of notoriety or, or, or popularity within the mage community and they want to take them down a peg. Well they can use the Bureau as their bully squad if the Bureau isn't smart enough to realize what's going on. If the GM has a very large world in which he has adventures taking place in, where they're not just these little isolated boxes here and there that never have any cross-connection, then all these things can happen. There are all kinds of layers of motivations can come out. And the character background and these connections that they have to previous cases, to previous points in their lives, can make all the difference in making a, a, an adventure really pop with the players. There's another type of character origin that has come to mind for good player conflict. Not necessarily a double agent, but a defector from another organization. A former Brotherhood member, as in the old Harrison stories, where, where Brother, what's his name, decided to the change... Highest pole, so, the Brotherhood of Darkness, yeah. Yeah, they were that, when Brother, what's his name, I forgot his name was, changed sides and started working with Robert Harrison. Yeah. Yeah, they never followed that up with having the Brotherhood put out a kill-on-sight uh, order. Because he was a bit of, well, a failure. That's why. <laughs> they were like... Oh, good, he's on their side now. Yeah. Oh, good, we got rid of him. Yeah. That's possible, that they could consider him to be more of a, ben a resource for the Brotherhood by adding a level of incompetence into the Bureau by them holding on to this character who really isn't fit. Well, he wasn't fit to be a villain so much. He ended up turning out to be a pretty good partner for Harrison. But I mean, also, like you said, Bruce, conflict is good in this type of game. I mean, you don't want to lose group cohesion, but you're always going to have the bantering back and forth with the guy who at one time worked for the enemy. I mean, yes, he has valuable information that could come out in the game and you could role play like, well, I go back to my buddy who still works with the Brotherhood, and let me see what I can find out from him. But even then, it's going to be some, and I, and I stress here, some within the group conflict, like, you know, just bantering, like smart remarks. All the Bureau, you know, like there might be a Bureau agent who may have been injured by a Brotherhood of Darkness agent. And then you've got this defector coming in the team 
and he's proven himself, but this guy is still going to give this defector a bunch of just because he worked for the Brotherhood at one time. It's good role-playing. The story hooks are good because you can use that defector, yeah, my buddy who's working saying that there's going to be a raid. That helps build adventures. Some of the best adventures I've ran is when I've talked with my players and said, okay, there's this story hook in your origin. I want to work on that somehow. And I'd be sitting down there with the player for like a couple hours, and we'd just bang this out. And obviously, he or she would just give me a bare bones because I didn't want to too much. I mean, I wanted to leave it a surprise for that player, too. And they trusted me enough. They'd been gaming with me for 20 years. They trusted me enough to where I could use that information in their background to whip up an adventure, and then we go from there. The most common situation of that would be where you had a vampire. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The Bureau, I'm sure, has, you know, they have more than their fair share of what I believe Rich called them reformed vampires. Sure, and I'm sure that agents donate freely, not only for medical reasons, but I'm sure that the Bureau has set aside a small bank to help subsist those vampires who are now working for the Bureau so they don't go after their, you know, fellow agents. And, you know, of course, these vampires who now work for the Bureau, it's like, hmm, let's see. I have access to all sorts of technology and magical backgrounds. I can get blood whenever I want. I don't have to kill anybody. Yeah, it's a pretty good gig. I think I'll join them. You know, I mean, they'll just sit there and, you know, and of course vampires with all their their strengths and their invulnerability would be an incredible asset to the Bureau. As long as the other player characters don't see them as monsters that need to be put down at the first opportunity. Well, right, yeah, you have to have a very open-minded bureau team to be willing to work with a vampire. Trap, actually, you don't. They can be ordered to work with the vampire. That's the advantage of having a parent agency that gives you teams and tells you you've got to work with what you got. Yeah, that's true, and that brings the conflict because you know they're going to be sitting there going, you're going to do it and you're going to like it, and they'll be like, I'll do it, but I won't like it. <laughs> yeah, but if you do that as a GM, what you need to do then is you need to create a path to redemption for this monstrous character so that they can finally integrate with the other members of the team. Just because your character died doesn't mean doesn't mean he has to leave the team. Oh there yeah, have, ghosts. There have been ghosts. And and in, in the case of your, your team Fremont, Sylvester, a mummy, as long as they still have enough presence of mind to know right from wrong, good from evil, they still would be viable assets to the Bureau. In some cases, a ghost may not necessarily be a full-time member, but there are instances where their unique abilities would certainly help a Bureau team. So we see that a character background, especially having to do with the integrating the origin story with the character itself, is really a great advantage to the campaign in Bureau 13. It provides all kinds of motivations and future story hooks and... Uh, all kinds of ways for the characters to generate conflict either uh, with the world around them or also between themselves. Conflict is good. And if you want your characters to be really something that you're going to remember, you need to provide the opportunities for these characters to feel and resonate and react against each other and the world in which they live. This is Bruce Sheffer saying... 
There are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. And this is Blix. Remember, bullets speak louder than words. This is Jay. Keep it simple. The players are going to complicate it for you. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. The Tri-Tech Podcast is protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial distribution or derivatives are allowed. The Tri-Tech Podcast is wholly owned by Tri-Tech Games. Visit us at www.tritechgamers.com or on Facebook. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.